Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, this is Ollie telling you about another podcast I host, Unfiltered. It's an interview show. We've talked about sex work, addiction, and battering racists, and we're only a few episodes in. Some of the guests so far, One Direction's Niall Horan, GOAT footballer Viv Miedemar, and Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan. Just search Unfiltered with Ollie Dugmore wherever you get your podcasts. The House of Commons is in quite an embarrassing state. MPs from different parties have had very public scandals, from Prime Ministers resigning to previously unheard of MPs lobbying for their mates. So many MPs lost their party whips for bad behaviour that at one point there were more independent MPs than Liberal Democrats. Order! 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 So, how do you fix it? One man thinks he has the answers. Rhonda MP and Chair of the Standards Committee, Chris Bryant, sat down with Ollie to discuss all this and more. Please enjoy. Am I tough enough? Strong and stable leadership. Total rhubarb. Hell yes, I'm tough enough. Shut the fridge. Not another one! It's the Politics Show Pubcast. Glad to have you with us. Um, Maybe it's best, rather than I introducing you, if you introduce yourself, tell us in the audience who you are. I'm Chris Bryant. I'm the MP for the Ronda. Uh, in South Wales. I've been Labour MP since 2001 and I'm chair of the Committee on Standards and sometimes I'm chair of the Committee on Privileges as well, just mm. to make things really complicated and niche. Just when uh, The Politics Show audience loves a select committee, so I think they'll, 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 they'll keep pace. I'm not even joking. Um, I've got a list here of various recent bits of rule breaking and I've tried to commit it to memory, but it's far easier for me to read it because it's quite extensive. Yep. So I'm going to give it a go. It's Owen Patterson and paid lobbying. Chris Pincher and MPs resigning over sexual harassment. Workplace bullying. Five MPs found to have interfered in judicial proceedings. Partygate. Cronyism and nepotism in the House of Lords appointments and in the awarding of £1 billion of PPE contracts of PPE that was not fit for purpose. And then Prime Minister Boris Johnson misleading the House. Given that list, is it surprising that that the confidence of the British people in Parliament is at an all-time low? No, it's not surprising. And... and, and 
Um, I've written quite a bit about the history of Parliament over the years. And obviously, you know, I mean, there have been wrong ones throughout our history, uh, including, you know, people who went to prison for fraud and all sorts of things. But yep. if you look at this Parliament since December 2019, 22, uh, as of today, 22 MPs have either been thrown out of the chamber for a day or forced to be suspended or thrown out of the House or... Um, have resigned uh, before a report came out criticising them. That is I, by far and away the largest number ever in our history. So you could argue that either this is the most punitive parliament we've ever had because we are actually dealing with some of the stuff which has probably been around for a long time, like sexual misconduct and bullying, um, which used to be just swept under the very beautiful Pugin carpet, um, or we are actually the worst parliament in our history. Which do you think it is? I think it's a bit of both, is the honest truth. And um, look, when I was first elected in 2001, I say all of this in the book, um, I, you know, it was pretty regular occurrence for older male MPs to slap a younger woman MP's bottom in the division lobbies or in the bars or whatever, hug them more than they clearly wanted to be hugged. And we did nothing about that in those days. Likewise, you used to hear MPs from, you know, their offices bawling out a, a, a junior member of staff. And that was clearly bullying. And nobody ever did anything about it. And we have started to tackle all of that. There's still a long way to go. Um, but I'm, I'm kind of proud that we're the first parliament in the world to have a confidential system, the Independent Complaints and Grievance Scheme, where people can go and make complaints um, about MPs or, for that matter, other members of staff working in the parliamentary community, um, and they will be dealt with confidentially. So you've mentioned a couple of times um, there already your book, Code of Conduct, which is the reason for this conversation, but also the increased powers that are now available for dealing with some of these issues. Could you um, go into a little bit more detail about the committee and what it can actually do to enforce? Because I know a lot of the time people talk about Parliament, whether it's um, a COBA or any of the other things, and sort of say that largely the sort of the processes around these things are quite toothless. Actually. Well, you chucked in a COBA there, like everybody knows what a COBA is. Yeah. And of course, it's yet another acronym for yet another body. And one of my complaints, and one of the things I think we need to change, is that there are just dozens of different bodies that regulate MPs' behaviour. So yeah. we haven't even just got one code of conduct. Mm -hmm. We've got at least three. There's the ministerial code, which affects ministers. There's the code of conduct for MPs. And there's the behaviour code, which affects everybody affecting in the, uh, working in the parliamentary community, including journalists. So that's three codes already, and they don't fit together. And then you've got the Standards Committee, which deals with breaches of the Code of Conduct, but can only look into something if the Parliamentary Commissioner for Standards has decided that there has been a breach and sends us a memorandum. Then you've got the completely separate independent expert panel, the IEP, which looks into ICGS cases, in independent complaints and grievance scheme cases, which are the, about sexual harassment and bullying. And then the Prime Minister has a theoretically independent advisor on ministers' interests, who sometimes Sometimes looks into um, uh, whether ministers have breached the ministerial code or not. And the, the truth is, it's a complete and utter mess. Oh, and the COBA mm. is the advisory <laughs> committee on business appointments. Advisory. In mm. other words, it has absolutely no powers whatsoever. So one of my arguments is that we really need to bring a lot of this all into one system, one organisation, and make it genuinely independent so that we can really re enforce standards throughout the whole system. And there's consistency, because the worst thing of all is if some poor MP fails to register something with the right place, you know, or does it two days late, simply because they, didn't, they hadn't really twigged which part of the rules they were meant to be going for.
Mm. Yeah, I, I, I guess in a way it's probably quite brave of you to take on writing something like this that's so acronym laden and is basically all about parliamentary procedure because not necessarily the sexiest of subjects, is it? No, well, I've tried. <laughs> I mean, people have described it as an entertaining read, so that's good. Um, uh, look, I, I, uh, I'm not a very judgmental person, and what, uh, this is one of the ironies about me being the chair of the Committee on Standards. I'm not either a particularly good person. I don't think I'm any better than anybody else. Um, and, and I, but I did used to be a vicar, or not a curate, in fact, many, many years ago. And I remember when I was training people for marriage, preparing people for marriage, I had to talk, talk, talk through issues with them. And I was felt a bit embarrassed about this because I was 24, I was single, I was not yet in touch with my sexuality, um, and I wasn't very good about commitment. So what on earth was I going to tell them about bringing up kids? And I asked my boss at the time, what should I say? And he said, well, the worst thing to do is to load people up with guilt and tell you, you've got to be a good parent because they just won't manage that. But if you say you need to be a good enough parent, they might achieve that. And that takes so much of the guilt off. So what I want, and this is not preachy at all, I just want parliaments to be good enough. I want MPs to be good enough. We're not going to be perfect. We've all got feet of clay. Some of us are clay all the way up to here. Um, and, and, and that's fine. Uh, in fact, I think a, a sign of maturity in life is when you accept that you're not all good, you're not all bad. There are some good things and you try to maximise the good things and minimise the bad. Uh, in your previous answer, you, you described ACOBA, another, well, repeat the acronym, as toothless. In terms of sort of enforcement powers, I think if people were to, I don't know, let's take high profile recent examples. So either the Dominic Raab ac accusations, the report into him, or the Pretty Patel ones, and yep. kind of go, what really came about as a result of those investigations? You know, what's the, what, how, if someone is found to have breached the ministerial code, if someone is found to have bullied someone, and they're sort of, they're, there isn't actually really any enforcement that follows on from that. They're sort of pulling their hair out going, oh, right, so we know, we know what's happened. What now? Well, in a Pretty Patel case, um, Boris Johnson decided, I don't care, uh, Mr. Independent Advisor on Minister's Interest, you found that um, she is guilty of bullying, but I don't care. My view is that she isn't, so Yabu sucks to you. And uh, guess what? The Independent Advisor said, right, well, in which case I'm off. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm, I'm clearly not, I have no independence. I have nothing to do other than to resign. And Pretty Patel remained in place. She did get sacked for something else, but, um, and then she came back. Uh, Dominic Raab case, there was no Independent Advisor for Ministerial Interest because in the meantime, another Independent Advisor had resigned. Um, and so Rishi Sunak had to appoint a completely different person um, to investigate. And when that found that there have been instances of what he termed bullying, um, then Dominic Raab did go. But, you know, there are lots of things, I think, that bring Parliament into disrepute at the moment. Look at the case of Nadine Doris. If you were a councillor, right, an ordinary councillor in Buckinghamshire or Northamptonshire, or let's go Bedfordshire. If you were a councillor in Bedfordshire and you didn't turn up for six months, unless there was a real reason like illness or maternity or whatever, mm. um, the council um, would remove you. That's the law. Mm. But as an MP, you don't have to turn up for anything, not to vote, not to speak, not to do anything other than to claim your expenses. And that is just indefensible. Mm -hmm. We should have exactly the same system in Parliament as we do for um, councillors. But I have found a little trick with this, because in 1801, 
History is always very useful. In 1801, we passed a, a rule um, which said that no member shall absent themselves, or shall presume, this is that kind of language, yeah. shall presume <laughs> to absent themselves in the country uh, without leave of absence. So we could, if we wanted to, decide now that Nadine Doris hasn't turned up for a year. She's got to turn up in September. And if she doesn't, she's out. Mm. I actually think in the Dorries case as well, I think some of the parish councillors are demanding that she resigns now at this point. <laughs> They're so fed up with it. Um, of course, there are situations where somebody might be ill or, or on yeah, maternity no, or whatever, and then you make allowances for that. But th I'm sorry, if you've got a TV programme every week and, and you're writing books and all the rest of it, yeah. you, the least you can do is turn up in Parliament and represent your constituents properly. I would say so, yes. Um, in a couple of examples, recent examples, Owen Paterson and also um, Johnson in sort of his crowning glory appearances in, the, in these select committees. Um, around their appearances and also afterwards, both Patterson and Johnson described the, the sort of the process as kangaroo courts. Uh, and what's more, they didn't actually just denigrate sort of the parliamentary process themselves, though they, they had willing sort of um, platforms afforded to them in the media. Yeah. Um, most notably, probably the Telegraph and the Daily Mail. So my first, the first half of the question is about sort of how valuable are these processes if MPs themselves don't respect them? And then the second part is how culpable the media is as well in sort of allowing that to take place. Well, I explain a bit of the whole Owen Paterson saga because I was genuinely shocked. We, we, the Standards Committee has seven lay members. They include people like former chief constables and um, pharmacists and uh, lawyers and things like that, and seven MPs um, in, in proportion to the, num uh, to, the, to the political parties in the House. Yep. Um, so 14 members. We are really, really rigorous in going through, going through the facts when a memorandum comes to us from the commissioner saying that there's been a breach of the code of conduct. In this case, the Owen Patterson case, it was absolutely clear that he had been lobbying on behalf of his paying clients who were giving him £100,000 and more, um, peddling influence around Parliament and Westminster and government ministers, trying to get advantages for those companies. And that is, that's a breach of a rule which has been in, in place since 1695 in some way or other, since the Orphans Bill of 1695. I just presumed, I knew that some MPs were, Tory MPs in particular, were kind of concerned because they liked Owen, he was a mate and all that kind of stuff. But I just want, I said to all of them, just read the report. It's, it's all there in, in minuscule detail. We've been very, very thorough. He had every opportunity to put his case to us and did so for several hours and in writing and had very expensive lawyers and all the rest of it. But he'd broken the rules. And... I just presumed that in the end what the government would do was just kind of sit on its hands and let the motion go through to suspend him and then he would face a by-election. Very safe Tory seat. He might still be in Parliament because his constituents might have gone, all right, you've been a naughty boy, mm. you've taken your medicine, but nonetheless, um, we think you're a decent MP. Um, but that's not what they did. Uh, you know, with the willing support of the Telegraph and the Mail, big articles in both of those newspapers, uh, and with the Prime Minister right behind it, Boris Johnson, and Jacob Rees-Mogg, who should have known better, they tried to tear up the rule book at the very last minute on behalf of their mate. And they won the vote in the House of Commons, 250 to 232. And I was, I mean, partly I was gobsmacked, 
Partly, I was very angry with myself because I felt I can't have done the, my job properly. I couldn't have explained it properly to people. Of course, it all fell apart within 24 hours, and, and he ended up resigning from the house, and um, and uh, and we went back to where we were. But it felt to me, and I tried to explain this in the book, as if Parliament was on trial, and that's kind of what I feel at the moment. I, you know, I, I've lived in Spain under Franco. Um, when I was a kid, I've, I've lived in Argentina just after the dictatorship in 1986. Um, I've been in Chile. I've had friends who've been tortured by dictatorships. I've seen Putin, um, uh, Putin's troops shooting um, on the border in, in Ukraine. I know what dictatorship is, which is why democracy is so, so valuable. But it's so fragile, too. And I think if we keep on undermining trust in it, we'll lose it. People will say, oh, and it's much more efficient. You know, you can get HS2 built in weeks if you have a, if you have a dictatorship. Mussolini always got the trains running on time. That kind of argument. That's, that's, my, that's why I've written this. Mm. Um, and, and there's one other bit that is really important to me, which is um, the, I think one of our problems is we have next to no checks on balances in our system. Once you're prime minister, as long as you, have a, you can command a majority in the House of Commons, you can pretty much do whatever you want. You decide when Parliament sits, how long it sits for, um, what it debates, how long it debates it for. It decides whether you get two hours for um, the illegal immigration bill or two days. Um, and, it, of course, it always goes for two hours. Mm. Um, it decides which amendments can be considered or voted on. It decides when we go on holiday. Literally everything, including every penny of expenditure. We can't even table amendments to the police budget, for instance, to say we would like to have more police. We can't do any of that. And that is a real problem because I think it breeds a degree of entitlement in government. Mm. And we need to dismantle that. There's too much power in Downing Street. There's, um, there's a couple of things I want to tease out, but just to take that your last point then. So is the answer to empower the speaker, empower... I don't know, possibly some kind of select committee to control these things. What do you think the answer is to take power away from the executive? Take back control. <laughs> you know it. You know it. <laughs> uh, it's take back control for the House. Funnily enough, the House of Lords, because it is in charge of its own order paper and its own timetable, I think does and the scrutiny of legislation much better than we do in the House of Commons. Mm. Um, bearing in mind that during COVID, wh whether you supported um, lockdowns or not, Nearly all of that was brought in on the back of legislation which w had already come into power before it was published. Just think that through. Already come into power before it was published, let alone debated or considered in the House of Commons. Mm. Um, so, so I think what we need to do is we need to have a, a committee of seven, nine, eleven members elected by the whole House who decide the order of uh, you know, what we're going to debate, when we're going to debate it. Mm. You know what? They might even not just give us one week's notice of what we're going to do. They might give us a whole month so sure. that we knew we could lay it all out we, and we could end up turning up to the things on time. You've blown my mind with that suggestion, Chris. That's I know. It's absolutely shocking, stuff. isn't it? That we would know stuff. two weeks, three weeks in advance what we're going to be doing. It's interesting, though, um, as well, you mentioned the COVID, COVID stuff and, and more recently, you know, Lindsay Hoyle is constantly actually and he's generally speaking i would say that you get the impression he's a pretty mild-mannered bloke and then really getting quite upset with government ministers the prime minister as well about making policy announcements outside of the house that yep. there's this sort of this it's low kind of low level but constant sort of disrespect for for parliament and you're sort of completely he keeps talking about it he keeps saying you can't do this but they keep doing it <laughs> and he's got next to no powers other yeah. than just to 
um, sort of give them a dressing down. And, uh, and, and, and I'm not sure how much the dressing downs work as, as well as he does them mm. um, because they just go, yeah, yeah, I'm terribly sorry. And then they have no intention of changing. So there's two things you could do. First of all, I asked the independent advisor or ministerial, minister's interest the other day. So you're there to investigate breaches of the ministerial code. The ministerial code says that all um, announcements of uh, major policy should be announced to parliament first. So would you investigate if a minister didn't? He said, theoretically, or in theory. Well, what do you mean? I mean clearly, he's never going to do it. So we should empower him. We should say specifically, you must investigate mm. where, the, where something's been announced elsewhere. Because it's, a, it's trying to avoid um, scrutiny, proper scrutiny. The other thing we could do, though this is maybe going a bit too far. We'll see. Um, so we, we have a, a, a process for dealing with grossly disorderly conduct in the chamber. You know, if somebody grabs hold of the mace and swirls it around, um, or if they use unparliamentary language and get told off by the speaker and refuse, refuse to apologise, the speaker can name them and they, they're either chucked out for the day or in some cases for five days or even for 20 days. Well, that, all, that was put in place because in the 1870s, the Irish national MPs were so fed up with the British system, they wanted to disrupt it. Mm. And so they did it every single day. So we put those rules in. Well, if our problem today is ministers announcing things everywhere other than in the House of Commons, maybe that is grossly disorderly conduct. And the Speaker should start naming ministers who've done it mm. and expel them from the House for five days. That might make them wake up. My guess, we'd only have that happen once. Yeah, I suspect so. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Total rhubarb. It's the Politics Show podcast. And to backtrack a little bit then, because um, we were talking about Patterson and, and sort of the problem with uh, cash and, and lobbying, is one of the answers to that problem to just straight up say, no gifts, no extra work, MPs, you're paid a salary, and maybe the answer is, by the way, to increase the pay of MPs, which I know some people thought it doesn't sit very well with them, but I think is an answer to, you know, gross expenses claims or all this other work, and say, no second jobs, no nothing, you are an MP, you're here to represent your constituents, that's it. I, I, I've got a whole chapter on this, <laughs> um, and obviously it's an attractive idea. Um, let's say MPs, you, all you can do is, you have to, all you can ever do is be an MP. But what do you do about the, the person who, before they got elected, ran a farm? Mm. And they live in the farm still. And in fact, most of their voters quite like the fact that they're a farmer because they're farmers too. Are you going to say, sorry, you can't continue, you can't milk the cows anymore or whatever? Probably not. What happens if you're a doctor, GP, 
We need GPs, and probably it's a good idea to have people who are right at the, fo the forefront of the NHS, so that's fine. Um, books, I mean, I'm interested. I'm self-interested here. I, could, I, I have my hand up. Um, I think it's quite difficult to say that you shouldn't be able to write books and, and uh, because I would argue that this is part of my MP's work. I'm trying to make an argument about how we need to change Parliament. Sometimes I do it through the House of Commons and sometimes I, I do it through a book or through an interview like this. Um, so it's not as simple as everybody thinks. Um, and then, of course, there's the people who have lots of unearned income because they have family trusts or uh, because they buy and sell shares or buy and sell properties, things like that. What are you going to do about them? So I've come up with some suggestions of, of what, how I think we could limit it. Um, I don't think you should be able to be a director of a company. Um, I don't think you should be able to provide any kind of um, advice on how to navigate politics because that's using your position in politics um, and I think that's a conflict of interest. So there are things I think we could do to narrow it but if somebody gets up at five o'clock in the morning to milk the cows I'm chilled with that. Magnanimous. Um, I'm not getting up at five. I'm not ever going to milk a cow <laughs> I can assure you but okay. Um, you know. Let's but what about let's say I don't know gifts for example you know does, does an MP need a shooting weekend? Does an MP need an invite to a sports fixture? You know, unless it's, let's say, I don't know, DCMS, and there can be, you know, exclusions to this. But I'm just wondering whether an MP needs to accept gifts of that kind. Um, well, I th for me, the important thing is that if you have taken anything, you declare it declare publicly. It. And then, it, because the issue is, I think about the conflict of interest. If somebody is only inviting you along to try and bend your ear and make you more, do things more favorably for that company or organization or sport or whatever, um, then I think the public should know about it. And you should incidentally then be barred from be, uh, from, you know, lobbying on behalf of that organization. That, that is what the rules say at the moment. But so I think for me, the issue is the conflict of interest. And, um, I have to be careful about what I can comment on because sometimes issues come before my committee that I've already commented on mm. and then I can't really adjudicate and have to recuse myself. So um, I'm not going to talk about shooting weekends. <laughs> okay, very good. Um, I've never been on a shooting weekend. <laughs> I don't like shooting and I don't have a pair of plus fours. <laughs> let's, um, let's move on perhaps from the rule-breaking side of things to the more... Uh, serious side of some of the allegations that come out around in Westminster. I think a lot of people uh, removed from the political bubble will kind of see, I don't know, allegations of sexual misconduct, um, assault, harassment, take your pick, or um, in sort of more extreme cases, maybe assault, um, going beyond bullying, and think, in my workplace, if allegations of that came out, the the shortness of the shrift that would be dealt towards those things wouldn't even be a question. It wouldn't be a, yeah. oh, you know, can this person still come into work? It would be, yeah. absolutely not this person doesn't come into work. And it would also be, we need to call the police to involve them in this. And I, I think people, there's probably a degree of confusion around some of the severity of the allegations that made and then the perhaps lack of consequences or lack of more proper legal consequences for the actions. And I was wondering if you could talk about that's a little bit. Yeah, so these are, these are issues that don't come to my committee. Um, we deliberately set up a separate system, which is, which is overseen by a former High Court judge, um, because we thought it was important that MPs shouldn't be adjudicating on other MPs in this area. Um, but, um, and there's, there's a double bind here, because obviously 
Um, let's say there's a case of inappropriate touching um, by an MP to a member of their own staff or a clerk or something like that. The individual uh, person can go to the uh, our scheme in the House of Commons, be dealt with confidentially. Um, the end of that process might lead to the person being suspended from the House of Commons for several weeks. In practice, if it's over, well, now by law, if it's over 10 days, you can face a by-election. And to all intents and purposes, that would be the end of your political career. Um, it's confidential. So in one case, that started before the last general election. The person was re-elected because nobody knew about it. And then um, the report came out after the general election. That was a Labour MP, as it happens. And that person resigned from Parliament before the report was even published. Um, some people often say to me, well, why didn't that put the complainant go to the police? Well, when you bear in mind that the police at the moment, in particular the Metropolitan Police and other police forces too, have a reputation for being um, xenophobic, um, homophobic, racist, and um, not being very good at dealing with sexual um, offences, I can understand why people would think, I don't want to go through the whole criminal justice system if there's a system in the house that I can go through. And then there's a third place, which is some people make allegations to a political party. And this leads to a really complicated thing, because often the party will suspend the individual member. So everybody knows that that person's in trouble for something, but nobody knows what it is. Mm. So I, I do want much greater consistency in, in this whole world. But um, and we've only had this system of dealing with sexual harassment and bullying in the House for the, for the last few years. It's very new. As I say, no other parliament's got one. Um, we, we're reviewing at the, it at the moment to see whether it could be better. But, um, you know, there's at least one case where I thought, frankly, it was sexual assault. And that was a matter for the police. But the individual concerned didn't want to go to the police. Mm. You, you said that it's being reviewed um, potentially f to find ways to make it better. Yeah. In your view, are there ways? And if so, what are they? Yeah, so one thing I would do is I, I think we need to improve the quality of the investigation because there have been several investigations which just haven't been up to scratch and they've had to be redone. Um, and I know that that work of improving the investigation process is, is ongoing. We've recruited quite a lot of new people to um, make sure that those investigations are done properly. I, I'm always a bit cautious about some of the stories I read in the press. There was at one point a journalist said, said that 54 MPs are presently being investigated for sexual offences. This was completely untrue. Completely. And I knew it was untrue. I'd been to the organisation. They told me it's not true. I told the journalist repeatedly, but the story still got written and lots of other people then repeated it. Mm. Um, so I, 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 I really want member, people working in Parliament to have confidence. I want, it needs to be a safe place to work for everybody. Um, maybe some things have changed because, but in the end, attitudes need to change. Mm. There's too much old school thinking still around. I remember going on a, we have a valuing everyone course that everybody's meant to do and all Labour MPs are required to do, I think, or Tory MPs as well. Uh, most members of the House of Lords too, because they're part of the same community. I was gobsmacked by some of the attitudes from some of the members of the House of Lords. Really? Uh, yeah. And uh, I mean, I note that, I mean, I've been on events, two events that have been paid, that I've declared publicly because it's been hosted by somebody else. I've declared it, including the value. That's what I have to do. The members of the House of Lords don't. So there's much less scrutiny on them as well. And that's part of my argument in the book is that you can't just deal with this little bit or that little bit or the other. You've got to deal with the whole thing. We need a great reform act. 
which is going to uh, deal with all the many complicated issues relating to parliamentary standards right from the top, going to put proper um, checks and balances in so that government can't just do what it feels like, stop all this secondary legislation, start doing things properly, um, examine um, uh, scrutinise legislation properly so that it's fit for purpose um, and make, uh, make ministers, whether they're Labour or Lib Dem or Tory or whatever, properly, uh, properly accountable so that we reinforce people's confidence in Parliament and in democracy itself. You, uh, you mentioned there that there was a spurious number, 54 MPs in an investigation. What is the real number? So I think at the time it was 12 nine of which cases end up, ended up being dismissed as no, nothing to answer. Um, so, and that those three cases have all now gone through the system. Okay, so quite dramatically less than. Yeah. And, and so I, I, that's why, you know, I issue several <laughs> health warnings in the book. One is, if you're expecting me to be um, a saint, please put the book down now because I'm not. I've got in more scrapes than most MPs. Um, and I've made mistakes and I, I, I lay some of those out in the book. Um, but secondly, um, there's, it's, it's not right just to slag off everybody in Parliament. Uh, when I sit in the chamber, and this, it's not even a partisan point, you know, I, I see Andrea Ledsam and I disagree with each other on nearly everything under the sun, but she's done some really good work on early years. She came into Parliament because she wants to change the world. I disagree with her about the way she wants to work, but that's fine. It's an honourable profession. Um, um, Diana Johnson, likewise, she's done all this work on um, infected blood mm -hmm. and uh, people wouldn't be being, getting any compensation. It's far too slow and all the rest of it, but it wouldn't be happening if it wasn't for Diana and, and others who've campaigned on it. And I, whenever I sit in the chamber, I can, see, I, can do, I can say the same about lots of other MPs. I do think in this Parliament, it was a government Tory chief whip who told me this, um, there are some people who got selected in the snap election who should never have been selected to be a, a, a parish councillor, let alone selected for a seat um, that ended up bringing them into parliament because of the riding, rising tide of their political party. Mm. Um, and I think that's problematic. And there was another weird thing that happened. You know, there's this phrase, um, one bad apple. So some people use it as meaning, oh, there's only one bad apple, so that's okay. But actually, the phrase means one bad apple spoils the barrel. Mm. So you have to take the apple out because otherwise blight spreads. And my problem with Boris Johnson, got a whole chapter on <laughs> lying in the book. Um, my problem with Boris Johnson was that it's not just that he would tell a fib or exaggerate or elide or whatever, or evade and answering properly and, or give a false impression. It's that others then had to do it for him. So you, you then end up with a situation where it becomes absolutely normalised to tell a lie. Mm. And so one of the classic ones is about, you know, what is the benefit of Brexit? Um, and Boris Johnson used to say this, Jacob Rees-Mogg says it endlessly, and Rishi Sunak says it as well. Oh, we could do the vaccinations. Wrong. We were actually still under EU law when we first started injecting people um, and approving the vaccination. Uh, we didn't do it as fast as other countries. We started faster, but we didn't do it as fast as other countries. So, but but it, this just become normalised lying, mm. and that's got to change. Should we not normalise being able to point out a lie and call someone a liar then? 
Yeah, so another thing I look at, as you know, I think um, uh, two MPs in this parliament accused Boris Johnson of being a liar, refused to retract it. That is meant to be unparliamentary language and got chucked out. Mm. I don't think that rule is going to stand the test of time. I think, I think that's got to change as well. But one thing we could do about ministers, it's really important that ministers correct the record if they get something wrong. And of course, sometimes you do, by accident, you, you get it wrong. I think Andrea Leadsom at one point when she was a minister um, said billion instead of million or million instead of billion. Absolutely fine. We have a system. You, you write to Hansard, it gets corrected. The original version is corrected. Mm. So if you look it up online, it's there. Unfortunately, that doesn't happen for backbench MPs, which is, needs to be changed. Um, but if a minister is told by the UK Statistics Authority that what they're saying is wrong, factually wrong, then they must correct the record in my book. And if they refuse to do so after a month, say, after 28 days, I think that that should be considered a breach of the code of conduct. My committee could investigate mm. um, and, if necessary, suspend somebody for 10 days. That would stop it. Why do you think that's not, not happening right now, then? Well, um, I've got a plan. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, we were talk talking a little bit um, earlier about sort of whether or not this parliament is any better, particularly in relation to more serious allegations. And I just wonder whether the phrase that gets bandied around is, you know, old boys club. You yeah. Know, if parliament is kind of, you know, an extension of one of these members clubs or, you know, the, the end result of the finishing school of the, the super elite private schools and then an Oxford PPE degree or whatever. Do you think it's fair to still describe Parliament as an old boys club? Have things got better to the point where it can't be described as such now? Well, actually, the issue, I think, is the good chaps principle that underlines the whole of the way we structure Parliament and its relationship with the government. Um, because it presumes that we don't need checks and balances because ministers will be good chaps. And still, obviously, the majority of ministers are chaps. Um, and some of them are good, uh, but not all of them are. And that, that is problematic. You need to have a constitutional system that doesn't allow people to abuse it. For instance, to prorogue parliament, just, you know, to suspend parliament for, for weeks just because the government doesn't want to face any kind of scrutiny. Um, or, um, is going to use, set up discretionary funds for giving out money to parliament, to constituencies, supposedly on the basis of need, but actually on the basis of whether the minister likes the MP who's asking for the money, mm. um, and, and so on and so on. I mean, we, we actually have a system where our government of the day can suspend standing orders in the House of Commons or rewrite them simply on the back of its own majority. There's no other country in the world that behaves like that. The government can decide how boundaries are drawn up. They don't, don't decide the actual boundaries, but we, we do it by registered voters in this country, even though 9 million people, roughly, are not registered to vote, even though they could be. Which, and that means that the boundaries are drawn up so that places with high um, numbers of black, young, minority, ethnic, um, uh, um, and poorer voters don't even get counted. Mm. In other words, you rejig it, it's, it's a form of gerrymandering towards the Tories. So I, I think I, I want a system which doesn't presume um, that everybody's going to be decent, proper, accountable, honest. It's got to start assuming that we might not be. Mm. Um, and you need proper checks and balances because power, a bit like muck and money, is best when it's spread around. So what do you think then? Codified constitution? Did you read... Um 
Gordon Brown's uh, report for the Labour Party, you know, House of Lords reform, etc. I did. So I would reform the House of Lords. The very first um, motion I ever tabled when I became an MP back in 2001 was that um, uh, that, w- that we should have a, an, a wholly or substantially elected second chamber. Mm. I believe in democracy. Um, all our arguments for not reforming the House of Lords are basically anti-democratic. And of course, it's a nonsense that you've got a resignation honours list from somebody who's utterly disgraced and has been chucked out of Parliament. Mm. Um, and we haven't had the list trust one yet. So yes, that all needs reform. I would have more of a written constitution. It, incidentally, it's, it's wrong to say that we haven't a written constitution. We've got bits and pieces that are written down. But like, one, this is a bizarre thing. You'll know this because um, you're slightly geekishly interested in this territory. If that's not me being offensive, Absolutely which is not. <laughs> you cannot resign as an MP. There's no means of resigning. Lots of novelists say, and such and such then resign as an MP, and that tears my hair, I'd tear my hair out. Because what you have to do is you have to apply for an office of profit under the crown because of two motions that were carried in the 17th century. Um, and that meant that Owen Paterson, even though he was being chucked out for corruption, had, was given an office of profit under the crown. Or even more bizarrely, when Jerry Adams wanted to resign, um, they had to make him the crown steward um, of uh, the Chilton Hundreds. And he pointed out, but I don't believe in the crown. I'm a Republican. Um, so, of course, we've got to change that as well. We can't just rely on all these kind of quaint um, uh, sort of G-jaws in the political system. We've got it, it need, the whole thing needs reform. To the, uh, to the power imbalances between MPs and either their staff or the staff of the parliamentary estate, the hierarchy of power that exists there. Do you think that makes it unique as a workplace and as a, as a location for the stuff that we've been discussing during this interview to take place? Not unique. Um, I, I get a bit fed up with everybody saying Parliament's unique, but, but it does mean that we have problems. So but politics is based on power and patronage. You know, the prime minister gets to appoint the ministers, the ministers get to appoint um, their staff and so on. Um, and, uh, and everybody is chasing around, you know, getting another step up the ladder. And so that, in that set of circumstances, people that higher up the ladder need to be very, very careful they need to understand the power that they're exercising um, and not abuse it either f- uh, as a bully or um, for sexual favours. And uh, sorry, then there's one other thing about the building, which I think is problematic. You know, it's a beautiful building in many regards. Uh, it's a symbol of uh, democracy and the rule of law around the world. You know, if you want to show you're in London, you know, in a movie you show but, um, the Palace of Westminster, don't you? But, but it's problematic because everybody's in a tiny little office with their, you know, two members of staff. Many people arrive as MPs having never employed anybody before in their life, and suddenly they've got a £160,000 budget to employ MP uh, and to employ staff. Um, they don't know what they're doing. Um, sometimes they appoint inappropriately. I look at the turnover of staff for some MPs, and it's really, really worrying. Mm. We've already touched a little bit on public trust. Just more broadly, what do you think is at stake here if we don't do anything to address the problems that we've been discussing, if the changes that you're advocating for don't come to pass? Well, we've only had universal suffrage since 1930. So we've not had it for 100 years yet. And if, it's, if it comes into severe disrepute, as a, as a lad said to me actually in the gym in Ustrad in the Ronda a few weeks ago, um, he was working out next to me much more successfully than I was. But he said to me, 
if Boris Johnson gets away with lying to Parliament, there's no point in voting. And he's sort of got a point. So that's what's at stake. Do we really want to be a democracy? Could we be a better democracy? Do we presume sometimes, you know, we bang on about it, the mother of parliaments and all that kind of stuff. Do we, have we got this kind of effortless British superiority which makes us presume that we're not corrupt? Because we're not quite as corrupt as South Africa. We've not got, you know, those kind of problems. So we needn't worry about the problems we've got. I would argue that we're, we're kind of slipping down a helter-skelter and we need to grab hold of the sides because otherwise we'll end up down the bottom. Are you confident that we can? I look at a new generation of politicians who are coming through and they're really impressive and clever and bright and I think very, very committed and dedicated to the right things. Um, but I think, uh, and I have a lot of confidence in them, but I do think we've got to take this moment really seriously. Now, it may be some of these things might, might get changed before the next general election, I hope. Not all that hopeful of that happening. I suspect it needs a change of personnel. And there's, there's a bit of me that just thinks this parliament, it's well past its use-by date. It's, it's, it's smelling very, very iffy. I think there's a lot of people that feel that way. Yeah. Um, final question. Do you fancy being the Speaker of the House of Commons? No. Why not? I think Lindsay's done a better job than I would have done. Uh, I know we stood against, you know, he beat me, yeah. um, 300 to 200 or whatever. Um, I think he's done a better job than I would have done. And you could argue that I've maybe done a better job of being chair of Standards Committee than he would have done as chair of the Standards Committee. But look, I, I, I still want to change the world. I, I, wanna, I want Putin to lose. I want Ukraine to be free. I want, um, I, I want people in my constituency in the Ronda to have a, a decent chance of um, making, making their way through life without having to rely on handouts and all the rest of it. And so that's why, of course, though this book is not written primarily as a Labour MP, mm. I, want, I desperately want a Labour government and I'm going to do everything I can to get one and try and persuade Keir that a lot of the things in this book are worth doing. Chris Bryant, maybe we'll, uh, we'll have you back in to talk about some of those things. Thank you so much for coming Thank in. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Cheers. Now, I hope you enjoyed that chat. Me, Ollie and Ava will be back next week with another episode of the podcast. So make sure to subscribe. And if you fancy a chat about this episode or anything at all, tweet us at politicsjoe underscore UK or get us on our subreddit. Until next time. Thanks for listening to that episode of the podcast. If you enjoyed it, I reckon you'll also enjoy Unfiltered, our interview podcast. Here's a little taste of the episode with Gary Lineker. I love my life. I enjoy, I enjoy fame. People are lovely. It's so easy to be distracted by the tiny percentage on on Twitter. In the real world, it's not like that at all. I think I've had only two instances in my entire life where people have had a pop. One old lady elbowed me in my back. <laughs> she was on her way to a Tommy Robinson rally. Really? Yes. Okay, that nice. old lady, she gave me, whoa, lady car. And something like, whoa, whoa. Yeah. And then I had another one where I was going shopping, my groceries, and some bloke shouted out of the road, you hate Britain. You hate Britain, don't you? <laughs> no, I really love Britain. But anyway. That's Unfiltered with Ollie Dugmore, wherever you get your podcast. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited-edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide.